All right. Well, we're going to kick straight in. So if you can grab your Bibles, we're going to read the text, uh, the bit out of the Bible first. This morning, so James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. James 2, verse 1. We read from the uh, ESV, which we like. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I wonder what you think about this text. This text is all about favoritism or partiality. The Greek word in verse 1 there, that's translated as partiality, literally means to receive someone according to their face. That's, uh, that's what it means. Um, or judging someone's value based on their appearance. And I want to ask you, just as we kick in today, do you think this is a problem for us? You know, one of the realities connected with writing sermons and, uh, and preaching a sermon on a particular passage of Scripture is sometimes the passages of Scripture overlap perfectly, like the original context overlaps perfectly with our context, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just a little bit to the side. Uh, Some of you may say in Australian culture, um, I don't know whether we really have that big a problem with partiality and favouritism. Not in Australia. We are an egalitarian society, right? We've got the tall poppy syndrome. If you get too tall, we'll cut you down. No need to thank us for it. We'll We'll just do that to you. We call everyone mate, don't we? Everyone. We, we love to back the underdog and we love it when the little guy wins over the big guy. No classes in Australia, right? Anyone, what about this one? Anyone who takes themselves too seriously, what do we do to them? We take the mickey out of them. That's what we do. And if they get offended, what do you do? We do them all. That's it, right? There's a uh, famous quote of uh, Dennis Lilly back in 1977 where he went and he, and he met the Queen. 
And uh, you know what he said to the queen when he met the queen? G'day, how you going? And what would we say? What a legend. The quintessential Australian. Doesn't matter whether you're the, the queen of the Commonwealth. You just, g'day, how you going? Polly's love to have a beer at the pub to show that they're the everyday man. You know, this, this uh, built into Australian culture is uh, a whole bunch of kind of um, principles that kind of are egalitarian. We, we kind of like to try and pull everyone down to the same level. But does that mean that we don't have a problem with favouritism? I don't think so. I think what it does is it pushes favouritism and it pushes partiality onto the black market. We still do it, but we need to be a lot more sneaky about the way that we do it. So I've called today's Sam and Kill Kids, right? And this is, here's the reality about being someone who's cool in Australia. You can kind of you kind of be cool, but you, if anyone ever says it of you, then all of a sudden you're not. Have you noticed that? That's kind of how it works, right? You kind of you kind of have to be sneaky cool. Is uh, is how it works. Um, so what we're going to look at today is we're just going to look at a few things to do with partiality and favoritism. Three things in particular. We're going to look at the fact that we have favorites. The second thing we're going to look at is we are not as loving as we think. And uh, the third thing we're going to look at is that God is a loving person. Here's where we're going to start. We have favorites. Now, now this is the big idea that James is getting at. A rich guy comes into church, gets a fancy seat, and the uh, the Greek text actually uh, communicates the, the meaning behind it is not even that the uh, poor guy, the shabby guy, gets to sit on a footstool. He gets to sit next to the footstool on the ground. So you can picture it, right? There's his church meeting going on. The rich guy comes in. He gets treated really well. The uh, The poor guy uh, doesn't get treated very well and gets to sit on the floor. Now, what have we got going on? Well, we've got a difference going on between wealthy and poor people. And it definitely has a material context. Uh, it's, it's about material goods, but it also, I think, has a spiritual context. And the question I think that we've got to ask is, why is there a variation in the way that rich and poor people in this context are being treated differently? And in, in kind of drilling down into this, what I want you to consider is one of the key uh, societal structures of the day. You may not have ever heard of this before, but uh, there was a thing in Roman society called patrons and clients. And patronage was a big, big deal in Roman society. So um, a patron um, would be someone who would be a benefactor. They would be someone who would be rich, they'd be influential, and basically what the clients were is the, the clients were kind of groupies. That's really what they were. They'd hang out with the patron and hope that maybe some of the glory would rub off the patron. Um, they would, um, they would honour the patron. So, so the patron would, would share some of their glory, some of their influence, some of their finances with them. And these clients, the groupies, would give thanks and public honour to the patrons um, and, and just give high loyalty to them. Uh, here's a good quote that describes the way patronage actually worked in the first century in Roman culture. In a world, and note this, in a world in which wealth and property were concentrated into the hands of a very small percentage of the population, note that, 
the majority of people often found themselves in need of assistance in one form or another and therefore had to seek the patronage of someone who is better placed in the world than himself or herself. Patrons might be asked to provide money, grain, employment or land. The better connected persons could be sought out as patrons for the opportunities they would give for professional or social advancement. One who received such a benefit became a client to the patron, accepting the obligation to publicise the favour and his or her gratitude for it. That would go well down well in Australian culture, wouldn't it? Uh, thus contributing to the patron's reputation. The client also accepted the obligation of loyalty to a patron and could be called upon to perform services for the patron, thus contributing to the patron's power. The reception of a gift and the acceptance of the obligation of gratitude are inseparable. So you've got to hear, I think, James chapter 2 in this kind of historical context. This is, this is what's actually going on. You know, if you wanted to go up the ladder in the first century, you needed money and influence. That's what you needed. And here's the bottom line. Money actually provides both, Right? Money money's about power, isn't it? It brings, it brings comfort. It brings security. I mean, uh, what you have in the first century is the rich would take people to court, take the poor people to court, and they would be able to carry the favor of the judges. Um, this is James 2 verse 6. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? In some ways, I think this is not that different to today, is it? I mean, justice doesn't always get done. Justice is dependent upon how much money you have at some level and how much legal support you can pay for. You know, there, there is still a tendency in our culture for the rich to afford legal action and the poor not to. And we've got services that support people. Absolutely. And we've got lawyers that do pro bono work uh, for that reason. But it still kind of happens for us today. Uh, money's about power money's about influence too isn't it money talks people will do things for money i'm not going to go into the details of it but you'd remember many of you would remember the movie from not that not that many years ago called the indecent proposal you know you pay enough money and you the whole idea behind that movie is you pay enough money and you can get anyone to do just about anything that's what the idea was behind that and the other thing about money is money is about glory that's what it's about. You can buy stuff that makes you look grand and fancy, can't you? You can buy the new technology. You can mix it with the rich and famous. You know, glory is often attached to money. There was a glorious new convertible Mercedes that we drove past yesterday. <laughs> like you look at it, that is, that, is, that is a glorious car. And I think if I bought that one, and I sat in it. I too would be glorious. <laughs> you think about it. We are into uh, we are into glory. Here's, here's an example of uh, of uh, um, the way glory kind of works, and glory is uh, often attached to money. There is uh, people are name droppers, right? That's glory by association. I mean, you can see this kind of dynamic in the New Testament in Corinthians, where. The, uh, Paul talks about some people saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. It's like glory by association. And, and you note even in the very first verse of uh, James chapter 2, at the end of that verse, 
the first verse of this section, it says the Lord of all glory. So glory is an important thing. Now, now you know what's happening in the culture of the day. And I think a bunch of those things about money were happening in the culture of the day. I want to ask you this question. If the rich are a pain in the neck, which is basically what, what James is saying in James 2, what are they doing in church? Right? If you've got a whole bunch of people who are rich people who are taking you to court, what are they doing in church? Now, there could be a whole bunch of reasons why they're in church. They could be visitors to church. Um, but what are they doing there? And here's, here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you because it had some personal benefit to the people who are in church. It had some personal benefit. And I want to say to you this morning, and I've been working on this all week and thinking about it and just arguing it through in my mind, the engine room of favoritism is personal benefit. That's what it is. It's the personal payoff. No one plays favourites unless there's some kind of benefit in it for them. And I think this is actually what's going on in the scripture here. This is what it's all about. You treat people differently depending on what, and this is a, I mean, if you're newish to the project, this is what we do, right? But let's just be honest about it. We treat people differently based on what we can get out of them, don't we? Whether it's glory or glory by association. And I think in the church, in uh, the example that uh, James is giving in James 2, I think the rich people have more to offer than the poor people. So they get treated differently. Now, money in the church is risky, isn't it? Has anyone ever noticed that? The church blows out about money, over money in the church. Everyone knows that. But here's the bottom line. I just want to say this, that the church blows out about a whole bunch of other things, not just money. Sometimes I think people's issue with money in the church is that they're envious and they wish they had more money. I think that's true. Uh, but there is a risk with money in the church, right? Because what can happen in a church? Well, what can happen in a church is what James describes. Someone rich comes in. Maybe they're a very generous giver. And we just kind of curry favor with them. Or the leaders curry favor with them. It's like, oh, I'm going to stay in the good books with them because then we're going to get some cash. That happens, right? And... And I have always been mindful of this, <laughs> okay? I've always been mindful of this. And the question, you wouldn't know this, but this is what, this is the question that goes through my head, is whenever I get to a text on generosity or a hard text, which I think is actually going to be pretty direct for uh, people in the church, and in particular, people in the church who are more wealthy, am I still prepared to say it the way that the Bible says it? That's the test. Are you prepared to lose because this is the reality, right? At, at, at one level, I am, being the uh, lead pastor in the church, I'm the one who leads, uh, is discharged by the elders to lead the vision in the church, but I'm also the, the, uh, the guy that is the bean counter or helping with the bean counting, all right, and making sure that the end, that ends meet. And this, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, early on in the project, this was a real struggle for me because, and here's what I grappled with and that God had to teach me early on, 
um, in the project is I thought that money, now I never, I never would ever say that this is what I believe, but in practice, I think this is what I believe. I thought that money came from people, right? That's, that's probably an odd thing to say, but I'll tell you, this is what I've learned. Money in churches never comes from people. <laughs> it kind of does, but it doesn't. Here's the thing. Money always comes from God. And so my job is to stand up and to bear witness and to say things the way that God's called me to say them, to not soften things, to not change things because we don't want to offend someone to make sure our budget's okay. My job and Jaden's job and the elder's job in the church is to stand up and call it the way that God wants us to call it and for us to entrust ourselves in his hands that he will resource the vision that he has for the church. And as best as I can tell, we're doing pretty well at that. And I just want you to know that is our commitment. That is our commitment. At the end of the day, I just believe whatever God's vision is, he's going to resource it. Um, And so people are part of that. God will move on people's hearts to be generous, but I don't need to worry about any of that. We'll just keep pushing ahead and doing the things that God's called us to do and expect that he's going to fund it. Enough about me. Enough about me. Do you treat people differently based on what you can get from them? I wonder, where do you engage with others based on what you see they can offer you? Uh, Let me give you a few categories for this. Race. It's, It's probably true that we're more racist than we think. Probably. Right? Uh, I Clearly, I got a haircut. People have noticed today. Thanks for noticing. Uh, you look great too. Um, I got a haircut the other day, and uh, the haircut I got the other day was um, by a Japanese lady. And this Japanese lady, I had a great conversation with this lady, which is why my hair's so short probably. But um, we had a great, she just kept going. And it's like, okay. I mean, I'm happy with it. But uh, she... Um, Here's, here's what she said. She said two things that stood out to me. One of them was this. She said, Australians are wonderful people in that anyone that you ask for help will give you help. So, oh, that's nice. But that was after she said this other comment, which was like a punch in the nose. She goes, you know, Australians are really racist. So, really? And then she went on to tell me this story about an interaction she had with someone who came into the hairdresser. You know, the woman was kind of white, kind of middle class-ish, um, Caucasian and you know how honestly you can kind of say that you're inclusive and you love other people of other races but you don't really know until they come to town and you don't really know until things start to change a little bit in your community I wonder whether that's a thing what about uh, people with disabilities how do you how do you engage with them you stay away from them is it? There are people often that can't really contribute much to you. I mean, I, I, um, when I see, when I see people serving and assisting people with significant disabilities, I, I think it's it's almost like I can hear angels singing. They sing better than that, but there's a large. Do you know what I mean? Like I just go, that is that is incredible. That is, that is better. Like, I, I think that is better than anything that I do. 
to serve someone like that who struggles like that is amazing. Is that is that you? What about gender? Do you do you treat people differently based on their gender? You know, our our whole culture's approach to sexuality is based upon what you can get out of someone else. That's what it is. You know, how much romanticism is connected to what you can get out of the other person. You shift and change the way that you treat them based on what you can get out of them. And I'm probably just a little hesitant to say it, but I'm just going to put it out there because everyone knows that that this happens in our culture, but we don't actually talk about it. Um, Men vary the way that they treat women based on their appearance. And women, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but that's a thing. And it's not just a thing in the church. Sorry, in culture, it's a thing in the church as well. And it's not right. I mean, any organisation, I'm going to transition on to another example, any organisation that has clear values and a clear vision and kind of holds to things really clearly is probably going to feel like there's insiders and outsiders in that organisation, including the project. You know, you're in the inner circle. Are you one of the cool kids? I mean, are there cool kids in the project? Do, do, they, do they get treated differently? Do, do they have more value than people who are not the cool kids? You know, that's the whole thing with favouritism, right? That's the whole thing with Australian culture. It's like, yeah, we'll be egalitarian if you fit in with our system, but don't fit in with our system or we'll give you a godful. And we'll pull you down. You need to fit in with our culture. And if you don't, if you don't fit in with our culture the way that we see that you should, we're going to treat you differently. I mean, you can even get into roles in the church. You know, the prayer warrior, the person, the leader in Restore Ministries, the elder, whatever leader it's like today, do they get treated differently? Is there variation there? What about this one even? Who do you talk to at the end of church? What about the new person? Sorry, is this getting too personal? Because I think it is. I think it is personal for all of us, right? This is personal. And let's let's just be honest. We we have favorites, right? Now you may you may do pretty well with this, but we have favorites. Here's another way I like to put it. Our valuing of others is often connected to their value to our ends. <laughs> so anyway, can anyone join me and say, yeah, I think that happens a bit for me. Is it, anyone with me? Oh, you're all pretty quiet. It's like, okay, Peter's the only sinner today. This is going to be an interesting sermon. At least, hopefully I'm more holy at the end. We'll, uh, we'll just keep going. Here's, here's the second one. We are not as loving as we think. Now, have a look at James chapter 2. I just want to read a uh, a verse or two here out of James chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 8. 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, here's the pointy end of the stick, all right? I want you to hear me on this. If you only love people who you can get something out of, you're not a very loving person. True? If you only love people who you can get something out of, you're not a very loving person. Now, this is what James is saying, all right? He's quoting this uh, verse about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And it actually comes, Jesus quotes it, but it actually comes right back from uh, the uh, Levitical law in uh, Leviticus 19. And notice this. This is, this is the quote. This is a direct quote. Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And interestingly, just before that is this verse, which sounds a bit like James chapter 2. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now, before we head into the details of what James is saying here, I just need to clear away some debris. Now, I could really get going on this, so I'm just going to be careful about it, right? There's a lot of people out there, and there's a lot of people in the church that say, see, you can't love other people unless you love yourself, okay? So before you go out and love other people, you should go out and love yourself, right? Now, do you really think that this is what Leviticus chapter 19 is saying? Do you really think this is what Jesus is saying? It seems odd to me that if you have a verse that's saying that you should love others as you love yourself, that we'd spin it around and make it about us. Um, seems odd to me. I don't think this is what Jesus is saying. I don't think it's what Leviticus is saying. I think what Leviticus and Jesus are saying is you already do. And go out and do it. You already do love yourself. So then just go and love everyone else, all of your neighbours the same. Well, you could ask the question, well, what's love? Now, that's a good question. And this is, this is a section from C.S. Lewis where he talks about self-love, which I think is, um, is quite helpful. All right, just sums it up in a nutshell. Here it is. Love is a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Just soak that one in for a little bit, right? Love is a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. On this basis, if this is what love is, you all love yourself. Okay, you had a shower recently. Um, don't like pain. Um, you want your life to go good and for it to be comfortable. Um, you want things to go well for you. You eat generally when you need to. Uh, you want other people to treat you well. You want to make sure that you have what you need. Your desire for your own good is consistent. True? It's pretty consistent. And here's the logic of James. Here's the logic. It follows that if you are obeying the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, 
then you will be loving consistently with each neighbor that you have around you. Does that make sense? If you love yourself and you want your own good, you will consistently love other people and want their good. And if you earnestly desire the good of one group of people but not the next, then you are not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Is, is everyone with me? That's James's, that's James's argument here. So it, we come to this point. The evidence of a truly loving person is found in the way they love those from whom they get no benefit. Isn't it? Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Listen to this. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What, what is one of the things that Jesus is saying here? God's love for people is not dependent on what he gets out of them. He just loves people. <laughs> so it makes sense, I think, when you look at James chapter 2. What is James saying that God would want from us? To love your neighbor, all of them. To, to seek after their good and to consistently do that, regardless of whether you get something out of them or not. You see, love that is dependent upon some kind of transaction, I would argue, is a pretty low-grade level of love isn't it? It's like, I will love you so I can get something out of you. Do you see the, you see the problem with that? See, no one thinks a manipulative person is loving, <laughs> do they? Like, they, you just don't. You, if someone manipulates someone else to get something good out of them and they look like or they appear to be doing something loving, you just go, that is not loving because you're not actually interested in their best end. In their best good, you're actually interested in your own good. Because the bottom line is a manipulative person is loving the other person on the surface, but underneath it's all about them. And I want to suggest to you this morning, perhaps, I think that we're probably doing pretty well at a bunch of this, but perhaps we're not as loving as we thought we were. Perhaps. If we show partiality anywhere, we're sinning. If we show favoritism anywhere, we're lawbreakers. This is what he says in verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And you know, James just takes it even further. He goes, you know what? You can't even play line ball on this one, right? It's not like, yeah, I just got a little bit wrong over here, but I didn't get this other bit wrong. James says the law was spoken by God himself. So when you break one bit of it, you go against God himself. And it's pretty brutal. Like if you, if you look at the example that James gives um, about kind of impartiality, about how you could break one particular law um, without breaking another, you know the one he chooses? He chooses murder. <laughs> it's like could have picked lying that would have been better right but he picks murder and and it kind of throws you back to what Jesus says about murder right you hate someone in your heart and you've committed murder 
You know, here's, let me, sorry to break the news to you, but hoping someone gets hit by a truck or by random lightning is not particularly loving. Okay? It's just not. Right? And some of you, you kind of go, well, um, well, it kind of is, because if I got to them first, it'd be a much bigger mess, right? But it's not. And, and what James is kind of saying is like, man, you are, you're stuck. You're stuck there. What is our hope? What is our hope? Well, come back to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Here's, here's, the, uh, here's the hope. God works in an opposite direction to us in our fallenness. Isn't it? Here's, <laughs> God is a loving person. He is a truly loving person. And do you know something? That, that's good news for you. Imagine that. Imagine if the supreme being of the universe only loved you for what he could get out of you. He doesn't, right? He doesn't sidle up to those who are talented or those who are rich in particular so anyone could offer him anything. You know, what he, you know who he looks to? He looks to the poor and the needy. That's who he looks to, spiritually and materially. And it's not that the poor are the favorites of God. Right, but there is a self confidence and a pride that goes along with being rich, either materially or personally, and it stops people from reaching out to God. Not always, but it often does. It gets a gets in the way of God being able to use people the way that God wants to use them. Listen to this from jump across here, one Corinthians one verse twenty six. This is why Paul puts it. One Corinthians one verse twenty six. One Corinthians one verse twenty six. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many of you in the church were rich. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I, this scripture applies to us as much as to anyone. Hey, folks, on our own, like we could just chill out and relax and just be comfortable with the fact that we're not that impressive. Okay? We're just, we're just not that impressive. And, and the reason why I can say that is even the most impressive amongst us are still not that impressive. Because you've got, you got some big shoes that you're going to compare yourself to, Right? You go start comparing yourself to God. You're just not that impressive. I think the world record for the heaviest weight lifted by a weightlifter is about 260 kilos. That's not that impressive. It's not even a car. It's not even a Swift like the Patterson's driving. That's a small car. Let's just be honest and say, yeah, this, this is us. This is us. 
wonder if you uh, remember that um, that moment. Maybe it happened to you several times in schooling where, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, morning tea, it's, it's lunchtime, and uh, there's a sporting game that's on. It's just an informal kind of sporting game. Uh, teacher's not involved in this. It's like, okay, so now we've got to pick teams, right? So normally what happens is the two most popular cool kids, right, with the most sporting ability get picked to be the captains. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Some of you are nodding. It's like, yeah, 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 you've had this. They get to be captains, right? And then they, one by one, they take turns picking the uh, the people who are going to be on their team. And uh, who do they pick first? Clearly, the ones that are going to help them win, whatever the game is. So the pick first person picks the best one, and then the second person picks the second best one, and then it just goes, now, I don't know about you, I always find my, found myself in the bottom third, right? I was, I was languishing um, at the end there. It's like, okay, the teams are almost filled and I'm still waiting to be picked. Well, how does God pick his team? You know how God picks his team? I'll take, uh, oh, what, what are we doing? We're playing touch footy, right? Yeah, okay, I'll take... Uh, I'll take the uh, first pick is the person who can't walk. I'll take them on my team. And the other captain's going, okay, this is going to be, we're going to smash this, right? Because this guy doesn't even know what he's doing. So they pick the best person. And then God goes, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, pick, uh, I'll pick that person who just, when, when they're running flat out, people think they're walking, Right? The person that just can't run, I'm going to pick that one. Uh, the one that can't catch, and it just goes on and on and on like this. And what, what is God doing? Oh, God is picking the poor and unimpressive for his team. And he's going to do something amazing with the poor and the unimpressive. Folks, this is, this is us. We, we are the ones that were poor. You think about our tendency to uh, to show favoritism, it, it kind of makes us a bit bankrupt, you know, because like I said before, we kind of get stuck. It's like we've done the wrong thing. We haven't loved our neighbour as ourselves, and it leaves us in a tight spot. But if you go back to James chapter 2 and you have a look there in 12 and 13, you can see that there's actually good news there because there's a new deal for God's people. There's a new deal. There's a new covenant. It speaks of the law of liberty. You know, the Old Testament law still applies, but it applies differently now. It's, 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 it's changed. And it's not like I've got to live up to that, otherwise I don't get across the line. It's like Jesus has come along and he's died. There's a new covenant. There's a new deal. He's declared us forgiven. We've got the law written on our hearts. We've got the Spirit in us, empowering us. And now we get to live into the, the law and live into doing things the way that God wants us to do them instead of being on this knife edge trying to be good enough with the law. It is a law of liberty. And for those who know that God's chosen them and he's been merciful to them and that they didn't actually have that much to offer, you know what you do? You show lots of mercy. That's what you do. If you've tasted mercy, if you know that God has given you mercy. 
and you don't deserve it, what do you do? Well, you go out and you give it to all these people. They give you nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Like you don't show favoritism. You, you go out and you show mercy to everyone. Anyone who's in a tough spot, anyone who's struggling, which is the whole population, I mean, sin has made the world strugglers, hasn't it? And so we go out with a, a spring in our step and we go, we are those who have received mercy. We were in a state that we couldn't get out of. We were trapped. And this God who doesn't play favorites came along and he saw me and he saw you in your decrepit state. And he said, I love you. (laughs) I love you and I want you to be in my family. And you didn't give him anything that he wanted. How good's that? So he says, go and do likewise. (laughs) Be people that love indiscriminately. Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 5 says this. Listen to the connection here between love and mercy. But God, it's just just talked in uh, Ephesians 2 about how we're, we're dead in transgressions and sin, stuff that we've done wrong. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Here's the bottom line. You can't get anything decent out of a dead person. Does anyone, anyone realize that? You just, there's nothing. So I just go, okay, okay, nothing at all. What, what is God's heart? God's heart toward dead people, spiritually dead people, is to give them life. And James 2, and our worship team can come up now. James 2, has a soaring conclusion, all right? And I would, I would just encourage you, if your parents, just sort of go home and have a roundtable discussion with your kids on this one, right? This is, this is one of James's proverbs, and it's just a soaring, soaring conclusion. Here it is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Anyone saying amen to that? Isn't that like, do, do, you, do you taste that? Do you taste that? Like you just go, yeah. Yeah, well, according to the law, I'm, I'm a transgressor. I deserve judgment. Well, what comes in over the top of it? Well, the love and the mercy of God. Can you imagine it? Imagine it on on the day that Jesus comes back. Now, there's a whole bunch of people that haven't given their lives to Jesus and they're going to be on the wrong side of the law, right? But what's going to be happening on judgment day is there's going to be a whole bunch of judgment going on. But do you know what else is going to be going on? Just lashings. Lashings of mercy going on. Aren't they? And you will you will stand on that day and you will say, either out loud or just in your heart, surely, surely, Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
But you can also say that now. If you've tasted mercy now, you can say in your hearts now, you can say, surely mercy triumphs over judgment. It rules, doesn't it, over judging others? And you get the opportunity to spread lashings of mercy around. Do you know something? Here's, Here's what I want you to remember. Everyone remembers mercy. Don't they? You know that. Everyone remembers mercy. Everyone wants to fight against judgmental people. Everyone wants to fight against people who show favoritism and partiality, but, oh, mercy. Now, that's a whole other category, right? That's unforgettable. 